with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis Podcast. Thank you so much for checking in wherever you are in the world. Uh, Today, I'm excited to introduce you to uh, just a world-renowned scholar, Dr. Joe Raylan, and he is an internationally recognized scholar in the fields of collective leadership, learning, and practice. He is the Donald Gordon Visiting Professor of Leadership at the University of Cape Town in South Africa and the Asa S. Knowles Chair Emeritus at Northeastern University in Boston, USA. He was formerly Professor of Management at the Wallace E. Carroll School of Management at Boston College, and he received his PhD from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Joe is a prominent inventor of a new theory in leadership and management studies. His pathbreaking work in diagnosing and managing the clash of cultures between managers and professionals, his reaffirmation of work-based and action learning as bridging knowledge and action in the workplace, his creation and application of the work self-efficacy inventory, his designation and application of leaderful practice to bring out leadership in everyone, and now his co-construction of leadership as practice, which looks to leadership not in individual personality, but in everyday practice, and in particular, in emergent dynamic social and material interactions. As a management consultant, Joe's principal practice in recent years has been helping companies establish leadership development programs using leaderful action learning methodology, a management development approach that encourages managers and executives to collectively learn and lead amid their very practice rather than in a classroom. 
Among his honors, Joe is a recipient of the David Bradford Outstanding Educator Award from the MOBTS Teaching Society for Management Educators and the National CEIA, Cooperative Education and Internship Association, James W. Wilson Award for Outstanding Contribution to Research in the Field of Cooperative Education. Among his best paper awards is his colleagues' work on self-efficacy, study as the best overall conference paper among all those presented at the 2012 Annual Conference of the American Society for Engineering Education. Wow. Sir, what else do listeners need to know about you? Let's add a little more color and texture. Are, are you from Buffalo originally? Oh, no. I, I'm, an, I'm a New England boy, New Hampshire boy. Nice. But, you know, and I noticed quite a few tongue twisters in that uh <laughs> review <laughs> i'm not gonna say it was not a not a not a light lift <laughs> well a new englander so you know we had this really wonderful afternoon in new hampshire this is gosh maybe eight years ago as a family in the white mountains there's a state park and we did this little hike we got the kids out of the car and just went on this hike and it was just absolutely beautiful you're talking real New Hampshire, the yes. White Mountains. And guess what? I grew up north of the White Mountains. Okay. It's beautiful. And my wife's dream, her dream is to move to New Hampshire and work for King Arthur Flower. That is her her dream job. <laughs> <laughs> we did a lot of baking during the pandemic, Joe. A lot of yeah. baking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, today I am so excited to speak with you. You know, I've been seeing this this phrase, leadership as practice, coming across my radar more and more recently. And I really, really appreciate your time because I want to really lay this out for listeners. And as we were speaking, even before we started recording, starting with some some foundational concepts, maybe even the background as to how you got to where you are now. Maybe we start there, go into some foundational concepts. And then, as I said to you before we started, go deeper and deeper into the pool, <laughs> but we're going to walk into the pool. Mm. So what are some of the roots of this leadership as practice? Let's start there. Well, okay. Uh, I think when we started uh, before, the, before the, the interview itself, I understand that this can be at times a little difficult because these are unfamiliar ideas and they diverge so much from mainstream ideas of leadership. So I can understand that at times it, it's a little challenging when we first start. In some respects, it was for myself because I really worked on this idea of leaderful practice before I even knew enough about practice theory. Mm. And so that then enriched my understanding of leader, <laughs> leaderful practice, which I probably had preferred uh, that I had started with uh, with with practice, practice theory, and LAP. But uh, so LAP is a bit more foundational than the leaderful idea. Maybe the best way to begin would be to say a word or two about what practices are. Yes, and then yes. from there. Yes, because okay, so my mind when I hear those words, Joe, it goes to like Erickson, deliberate practice. Mm -hmm. Right. There's that. So it goes to I pr I'm practicing law or practicing medicine. It goes to a, a few different definitions that kind of rumble around in my head. So right. that would be a great place to start. Yeah. And it's not even from the musical world, you know, rehearsing. Yeah. Like practicing it. So how about thinking of these practices as these embodied, practical, 
often collaborative accomplishments hmm. among people, you know, that in turn are shaped by a host of things that, you know, their, their collective discourses, the, the surroundings, the space that they're in, uh, the, the emotions that are expressed, the rituals, the movements, hmm. all those things can either enhance or detract from these, these accomplishments. So you can see we're looking well beyond just the talk between people. Yes. By the way, so that right there alone would be a distinction for our listeners that are perhaps have a, a stronger base in relational leadership theory than practice-based. So would practices in some ways be our ways of being, our habitual patterns? Would they be, some of the practices could be damaging in some cultures, in some organizations. Some practices could be healthy and life-giving and energizing. Would that be a, a way of thinking about this? Yeah. The, the only addition I would place there would be that for the most part, we like to think of these practices as collective things that people do together nice. or engaged in some kind of mutual endeavor. There's a collective mentality uh, for us in thinking about practice. So you can see already that it enters that collective leadership space. Sure. But to then add the specific leadership component, let me just add one other layer. We like to say that when social processes, you know, amongst this group of people working together, when certain processes change the trajectory of the flow of practices, yeah. change the, the turning points, you might say, in the spaces between these participants, these people, that is when leadership is occurring. Ah. So to find leadership, we like to say, you need to go to the practices within which it is occurring. Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I heard words like find. I mean, I love it. I love it. So, so say that again, would you? To find leadership, look to the practices within which it is occurring. Okay. Leadership is not something that is thought about ahead of time, in some respects, it's an outcome. It's a resultant from these practices. So you can immediately see that those of, those of us working in this field, we're trying to get into and discover those micro processes and practices and determine when leadership is occurring. Hmm. And it's occurring typically when there's this change in trajectory or change in the turning points that changes you know, the pattern that has been established in the group. Now, okay, obviously we're moving away from the great man or the great woman or the individual as quote unquote, the leader. This mm -hmm. is a collective process that's occurring. Yeah. Is it always a process, Joe? So for instance, maybe I, in a meeting, share my observation and that gains some traction among the authority figure or the, my colleagues, and we're kind of co-creating, but it's just a comment. I intervene. The group moves forward. It changes the trajectory. But is it in moments in time or is it again, are these practices longer term and, and more stable? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, I would say the latter, you know, okay. because these practices uh, are going on all the time. And you're absolutely right. They're influenced more by what we think of as a, a human process. Yeah. You know, it could be an interaction between the person and 
some artifact, we might ask, well, why is it that, you know, sometimes when you, you do a PowerPoint presentation, it seems to grab the attention and it can move the group forward, but other times it seems to be lost in space. <laughs> it so, kills energy. <laughs> yeah. So it's all those things. And so that's why we are very specific to almost anal to get into the thick of the experience, especially from the other person's point of view. Mm, say more about that. Well, what it suggests is that I think our study of these LIP processes tends to be somewhat phenomenological. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking primarily using ethnographies to look at the lived experience of how people see the things that are occurring around them. Mm. And you're on a hunt for these practices that help leadership emerge. Co-creation, mm -hmm. that, it creates that space for these trajectories to change. And these practices are in some ways releasing energy. They're breathing life energy into the space versus I imagine in some organizations, there are practices that like Dementors kill energy, kill co-creation, collaboration. Yeah. You might think, you know, as opposed to even other qualitative studies, I like to think of the LAP researcher as a detective. Okay. Yeah. Not necessarily an author. You tend to, we tend to think of a lot of qual studies as, as a, a practice in authorship. You know, we try to maintain, uh, if you're familiar with uh, phenomenological studies, we try to maintain this epoche, which means this detachment, so that we can really discover the phenomena from the point of view of the person, of the, of the individual inexperience. So, Joe, I'm curious, what are, have you, what are some of the, the practices that you've stumbled upon? Are there some themes that have emerged that are creating this space for co-creation, creating this space for leadership to, for us to find leadership? I love that. Can I, hmm. can I call the episode Finding Leadership? Finding Leadership. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in, it, I, I like that because it suggests that leadership is occurring and sometimes we need some kind of retrospective analysis to go back and say, oh, look what just happened there. <laughs> so just some examples then maybe, Scott. Why at times do uh, teams seem to hum along like a single instrument, right? And other times it seems like the participants disagree so vehemently that they may even break off. Hmm. And then at times, those ruptures are repaired. How and why? You know, yeah. we would probably be interested in that. But let's go to something totally different. What's the meaning of having a dinner with a client in another culture? And in some respects, uh, that could suggest possible leadership without a word being spoken. Hmm. We're looking at every possibility for trying to figure out how leadership can occur for some of our listeners who are in the OD field, for example. Sure. You know, what does it mean to look at leadership as an outcome? If you think of it that way, that means you're not looking for this single person and his or their aspirations for the group or their directives to the group. Hmm. To find leadership again, we have to we have to somehow get into those micro practices. 
Yeah. Find out what's going on. And so it speaks to the thought that in order to change leadership or change the processes in the group, we have to understand initially those situational dynamics that are going on in the group. Hmm. So that's, you see, where I think I initially missed out in inventing leaderful practice that I, I think we didn't know enough about how to really get into the thick of the leadership that's going on initially. Hmm. You're making me think of, and, and this might hit close to home. Have, have you heard of Orpheus in Boston, the conductorless orchestra? They're one of the foremost performing ensembles in the yeah. world, yeah. Scott. And in some ways, would they embody some of these practices, but just in that context? Well, I think it's a lovely example. Okay. Because if you're going to pick an institution (laughs) that, you know, truly seems to exist because of the single out in front leader, you know, the conductor with the tails. Yes. (laughs) And the baton. And you turn that upside down and say, here's a, a wonderful performing ensemble, but they don't have a conductor. Mm-hmm. But they are extremely involved in that experience. I mean, even in the case of, of ensemble music, not all the players are involved in the piece at any given time. Mm-hmm. So during rehearsals, if you were to observe that orchestra, uh, they all crowd into the to the assembly, you know, and they make these suggestions, you know, about balance and blend, you know, and they do that also in recording. So it's truly a, a multi-participatory experience mm. to, to, to see them in action, not again, not just the, the performance, just all the things that go on ahead of time. Well, my mind right now is going to, okay, I have an organization where hierarchy does exist. I mean, there is a person with quote unquote, a title. And they are the authority figure, we could call them. Yeah. But I think how you're defining it, how you're thinking about this, if if we that's just an authority figure. That doesn't mean that we're gonna find leadership in any of their behaviors or in those practices where leadership will emerge. Mm-hmm. And again, to your point, change the trajectory of the group for the yeah. better, correct? Yes. Yes. But that does bring to mind if you have a such an authority, you know, how do you change this group or this organization to become more leaderful, to be, to, to, to focus more on the practices? Yeah. So I think earlier when we talked, you had mentioned the leadership as practice book. Yes. That has these, as many authors, I guess, whom, you know, and one chapter uh, with authors, David Denyer and Kim Turnbull James, they talk about something called leadership as practice development. Hmm. So how do you change the leadership structure to incur more of this sort of democratic participation? So maybe this is a good time to say a word or two about this. LAPD, leadership yes. as practice development, if you don't mind then. Sure, sure. This is probably, I'm going to refer to something that probably goes a little bit earlier than your time, but you may surprise me. <laughs> well, Joe, how old do you think I am? I just had a birthday. Oh my goodness. Younger than me. <laughs> Good answer. Very, <laughs> very politically correct. I am 50. So born okay, in 72. Well, had, had you ever heard of or seen a TV program called Candid Camera? Oh yes, of course. Oh yes, yes. 
Well, remember the producer said all this program is about to do is to catch people in the act of being themselves. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, that's what this is all about. This LAPD. We have to catch people in the act of being themselves as they're working together. In other words, I said before in their, their lived experience. So they'd be attending to their own projects, maybe even for the development purpose, you might give them or assign them to a project that might be somewhat different from their mainstream work. What we might do in the case of LAPD is introduce novel forms of conversation that would be aimed as much on uh, reflecting and learning than on task accomplishment. Yes. So this, you see, is the connection to action learning, work-based learning, which has been another area of interest of mine. But for our for our listeners, what do I mean by adding a touch of conversation, introducing some of these reflective practices? It could be something as simple as having them learn to challenge their assumptions and their inferences, having them begin to explore some of their, their differences, their intersubjective differences, maybe even allowing them, maybe allowing particular individuals at times to have the courage to stop the flow of conversation because things aren't going according to the way they thought it yeah. should go. I'm sure we've we've all experienced that. We're in a meeting and all of a sudden things are going off track. And what do you do? I, I've been in that faculty meeting. <laughs> no, I can't imagine <laughs> how or why. <laughs> and, and introducing some kind of reframing to kind of change course. Hmm. So this is what we're trying to do, and this allows the participants to collectively gain the capacity to reconstruct their leadership on behalf of their mutual interests. Yeah. So this is the flexibility that LAP offers to those who might think that, no, leadership is for, is for those people. Mm. But it, in fact, it's, it's truly for all of us. When I have always really, really appreciated your notion, I, I said this on a podcast just the other day, you know, so much of our work in, in management is, you know, imagine if, if healthcare was doing it the same, that they were so far from the work sometimes. They, your, your work has always been, look, this, this education needs to be close to the work. It needs to be real. It needs to be real projects that we're working on in the context of the organization and not sitting in a classroom having a conversation about it. That's one type of learning, and it's, it's, it's an important one. But you don't have a pilot at the end of that conversation. <laughs> you have, <laughs> don't get in that airplane. Mm. You, you, you're, you're learning in the flow of the work and in the flow of the organization. And I mean, I've always very, very much appreciated that with your work because it's close. It's close to the actual work. It's not an add-on, but then we're trying to pause and reflect do some sense-making, potentially mm -hmm. redirect. And I think that's when it's uh, Theo Dawson. I don't know if you've explored her work, but she's incredible. If you have an opportunity, listen to that podcast I did with her. She has an organization called Lectica, but she calls it an opioid dopamine cycle where <laughs> when we're learning, there's heat and it's real and we're learning that's when we're firing. And that's mm -hmm. when the real connections are being made versus again, 
back to your PowerPoint from a few moments back, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> the, yeah. the 70 slide lecture that is, uh, you know, nothing's firing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you did say uh, one thing that caught my attention, Scott, you know, should there be a pilot? I mean, do, do we believe in getting rid of the pilot, you know, as well, the plane is in the air? And of course, uh, <laughs> depends on the technology on the airplane. Yeah, well, that's true these days. Maybe you truly don't need it. But uh, let's let's say we're on a Piper Cub. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here's the story. You know, there are these street movements that adopt some of these LAP leaderful principles. Yeah. And uh, there, there's there's been a problem with some of them. Like, for example, the Yellow Jacket, the, the Gilet Jaune movement in France. Okay. I'm, not, I'm unfamiliar. Uh, some of these uh, organizers are so adamant that they don't want to be seen as a leader that no one is available to mm. speak on behalf of the organization. And no one is available to take the steering wheel because they happen to have that particular expertise. Yeah. We don't believe that, that people shouldn't, shouldn't take particular roles. They sure. can help the organization. Of yeah. course they should. But in some cases, those roles are permanent, but in other cases, they're temporary. And sometimes they're temporary because you want others to learn what you're doing as well, you know, if, yeah. if they have such an interest. I, I wouldn't want people to think that this sort of collective approach means that we are rudderless. Yes. Well, I think it's imp it's an important distinction. I, I was speaking a few years ago with a friend of mine, a neighbor, who's on our the SWAT team in our community, mm -hmm. in our county. And they're practicing and they do a lot of training and they do a lot of drills. And I said, well, who's the leader in that scenario? And he said, well, there really isn't a leader. It, we all very much understand our role. We understand what we're about to go and do. And then we go do it. And at times things are happening so quickly that someone might need to step up and assume authority. But yeah. generally speaking, it's not like we're turning to someone in the heat of the moment for the next command, so to speak, mm. right? Yeah. But the, the, so that might be another example where the practices are so codified that everyone understands their role and the norms in that context exist to a point where, again, traditional notions of leadership may not be appropriate in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes this even occurs during crises. Mm -hmm. You know, people say during a hurricane or a flood, let's say of the Mississippi and the water's about ready to kind of overflow the dikes. You know, how do we organize to uh, sandbag the dikes? And people seem to sort themselves into the respective roles. And if someone were to take charge, that would probably produce a huge inefficiency because hmm. no one has the capacity to know all the skills and the resources and the needs to respond to, to that crisis. It allows people to kind of organize themselves to do the necessary leadership. Could norms be a synonym? The, the norms are so ingrained, the norms are so front and center to how we exist and how we behave that that, that could be a, a supplement? Would that? How does that hit you? Well, it certainly, I think, uh, is part and parcel of the practices. Okay. Because okay. those practices are made up of, well, one of our authors is, is named Bourdieu, Pierre Bourdieu, uh, and uh, he talks about the habitus. Okay. The habitus are these, these predispositions 
these uh, these norms, these uh, these axioms, these these principles that yep. seem to cause a structure establishing how we how we organize and how we view the world. Well, that okay. So now my mind is going to Ray Dalio. I mean, are you familiar with Ray's work on principles? Yes. Okay, I've heard some so, of his too. Okay, so so that might be another another way of thinking about this is that Ray, you know, he has a couple books that I've read. He's trying to to codify these ways of being that help us be functional in organizational life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. life. Uh, well, the, the only caution that I would put out there about principles yeah. or even other universal laws would be that they not be permanent. Okay. That they be flexible, that they be subject to a contested interaction so, yeah. so that they, they can become live themselves. Yes. And applied to each new context, each new situation as it arises. Well, Joe, you have called this a movement. Mm. Yes. I, I, perhaps I was a little bit uh, ambitious, you know, even using the word movement. But here's, uh, here's the derivation of this. We were doing a presentation at one point, and we called LAP at the time a movement hyphen. Okay, so we were talking about this being a flow. Okay. That leadership being a flow of practices. Because we wanted to, to distinguish one of the absolute essential shibboleths of standard leadership being influence, this idea of influence between leader and follower, to something that, well, one of our writers referred to this as in hyphen flow hyphen ends. Hmm. In flow ends. In other words, movement within the practices. Wow. We're, we're taking a very, very different tact. And we hope that this movement will in turn lead to a movement <laughs> 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 where people have a base in which to think through alternatives to the standard leader out in front model. Yeah. Uh, you referred earlier to the great person model, for example. Yeah. Uh, something other than uh, leadership residing in the individual. What questions are keeping you really, really, really engaged and interested right now as you continue to think about this work? What is it that's on your radar from a scholarly standpoint or just something you're really been thinking about when it comes to leadership as practice? I'll name some, and if you'd like to pursue any of these, feel absolutely free, but the contribution of LAP to theory development leadership, and uh, as a result, the contribution of LAP to leadership research. Okay. We've already talked about the leadership development phase of LAP called LAPD. Is LAP humanistic or is it post-humanistic? I think about that. And, wow. and so as a result, where, does, where do ethics reside in the LAP movement? Is it democratic, for example? Hmm. And uh, what about the role of context in LAP? Sure. Those are some of the things that have cropped up and I would say we're working on and we're working through, you know, as we speak as a 
movement. Uh, so I would love to go a little bit into context. How are you thinking about that question? Because I imagine, yes, in certain contexts, you know, you talked about it being a paradigm shift. As we have this dialogue right now, there's there's places in the world where this would be a totally separate conversation. Yes. Well, I think I would start in context by saying that for LAP, objects and events would be likely deemed equivocal unless they're understood in the present context. So it makes it a little hard for standard theorists to characterize Hmm. because we probably are going to change our understanding of LAP depending on the context in which it is occurring, which causes some difficulty in arriving at some form of normative regularity. Yes. So I'm sure that would cause some difficulty for those who are researching it. But context is absolutely intrinsically tied to yes. leadership for us. Well, that that goes back to our commonality around, you know, coming from Jesuit institutions. Context is critical, right? Yeah. So we have to change the patterns. We have to change those likely occurrences every time out. Maybe we can find some regularity across comparable contexts. That might be helpful, but it's going to be a little more difficult to track in the case of LAP compared to, say, some kind of personality theory of leadership. Sure. Anything else in context that you want to go to, Joe? Maybe just to say that uh, they are mutually constitutive. Hmm. You know, leadership is sustained by the context and vice versa. Research methods. Mm. I'm seeing, you know, this is heavy qualitative. Do you see a space for quantitative research? I think there might be in one sense for sure. And that is that if you think about LAP, its examination is by its very nature, longitudinal, Mm. you know, across time. And I think there are new quantitative methods to bring out these consistencies and inconsistencies across time. It would be inventive to see what people could do along those lines with quantitative analysis. Mm. But I would say in terms of theory, uh, it's, it's a bit problematic to think about LAP in the sense of scientific theorizing because the practices themselves are inconsistent because of what we just said, the variety of contexts that they're in. It's not as easily dependent on theory as it is perhaps we refer to abduction, you know, plausible explanation of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, an indicator that that we've found leadership is that we are influencing, right? There you go. That, that that's that's occurring in the system or in the group or in the in the space, and that is going to be, like you said, depending on context, different practices will allow us to find that space. Mm-hmm. Well said. Okay. <laughs> You can you can be our next representative. <laughs> Do I get a T-shirt or is there a pin or something? <laughs> uh, we throw you into the game. <laughs> get in there. 
Well, Joe, as we begin to kind of wind down our time together, is there anything else that you want to say that we haven't gotten to that you want listeners to have an appreciation for? Well, uh, yeah, one or two things here or there, you know, because you'd, you'd, you'd mentioned uh, the, the great person theory and this focus on the individual. And I think uh, I said that, you know, maybe we need to distinguish between the humanistic and post-humanistic uh, orientation of LAP. Clearly, practices precede the subject. In fact, at times, LAP has been thought to have what's called a, uh, a flat ontology. And all that means is the person is not the center of all things. Mm. And so what do you do with all this research on, on the autonomy of the individual, authenticity, uh, individual potential, trust? Is it possible that we're going to lose the value of the individual? The one thing I would say is in some respects, we have already lost the full contribution of the individual. This is something that I think has been forecast by critical thinkers a long time ago, and that maybe the individual has become incredibly fragmented and in some cases objectified within our existing power structure. Say more about that, Joe. As individuals, we ourselves can become objectified under a structure, under, I think it was George Orwell who referred to the velvet glove of control. Mm, mm -hmm. So what, so, so bringing this down to what everybody I think is dealing with these days, especially with social media, right, Scott, the problem of confirmation bias, where we're susceptible to AI search engines and become subject to almost an echo chamber where we're given the reality, we're given the truth that we already have created in our own minds. Yep. Yep. So there, there may be value with kind of forming collective groupings and even protest movements with others, you know, who can kind of challenge us on these views. Again, that we're always subject to this contested terrain, trying to kind of uh, work through the truth that we think we are are experiencing. <laughs> it's another candidate for the the title of the episode, the truth that we think we are experiencing. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how we think, huh? Changes things a little bit. You know, I, I was initially raised in my earlier career to be a, a therapist, a, a psychologist. Really. And so I'm I'm beginning to lose some of my focus on personality theory by uh, by thinking through the, the sociology of experience. Well, we have a similar background. I was at the University of Minnesota and my undergrad was family social science. So family mm. systems theory. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a cousin. Right. A cousin. Not the individual, but the, the family system. So very cool. Anything else that you want to underscore or highlight for listeners? I think when we first talked, you know, what does this do? Uh, where do we come out on the subject of ethics? Mm. If there are not these universal underlying permanent principles that can guide us, whereas I think an LAP approach would probably see that external moral authority is, is probably uh, unattainable. Hmm. Rather, I think the parties to any practice, I think, need to work out, you know, multiple changing 
and conflicting perspectives so that they can co-construct and negotiate ethical meaning as they work, as they work together. Yeah. So that's a very different kind of orientation, kind of more like a principled pragmatism rather than this idea of universal virtues and guidelines to help people in their ethical decision-making. It calls upon people to be somewhat responsible. Yes. You know, and work it out. Get in there. I mean, this is what Dewey said, you know, get in there and through the uh, the experience with with co-participants, these theories that you're going to going to propose, it's not for spectators. Mm-hmm. You've got to work them through with the, uh, with your co-participants in experience. Well, and I imagine in certain contexts, it could be extremely skewed as to what emerges as the practices uh, or the healthy practices. If you look to human history, mm. uh, there's at least a, a faction of people on the margins whose reality was far from a true north from a moral compass standpoint. <laughs> mm. <laughs> right. right. Um, so that's an interesting question because are there some truths when it comes to that that conversation around ethics or is it truly co-created in every instance by these these groups yeah yeah i mean i i suppose what what we believe is that maybe there aren't any particular features of persons that can actually in their own right break down the uh I'd have to say the dangerous discourses around now of conformity that I think can disrupt the social life. Mm. So that's that's probably one of the most immediate scourges that that we face as civilization today. Mm. Joe, you know, I, I I said we need to enter the pool through the stairs and the shallow end, and then and then move more and more into the deep end. And I think I think we're we're there. I think uh, this conversation, I hope, has sparked curiosity in listeners, and we are going to place a number of resources into the show notes. So for all of you listening, you will have access to a number of different articles, websites. There's a LinkedIn group. There's all kinds of things that we're going to draw your attention to so that you can be aware and you can engage in the conversation. Because as Joe has highlighted, there's some really big questions that this group of people is working on and thinking through. And, you know, I just really, really appreciate your work, Joe. I have followed your work since the action learning action research, that whole phase. And I just very, very much appreciate it. And again, what I appreciate so much from a developmental standpoint is just your belief that that education occurs close to the work and the people engaging in the work and those people learning together and with one another and in some ways co-creating that knowledge I think it's a, a wonderful way of thinking about how we do development. And I just appreciate your time. I'm so thankful, sir. Well, it's been a lot of fun. And you uh, you, you said uh, when we signed up here that this was just going to be uh, a friendly, easygoing conversation, <laughs> you know, like two people would have at a bar. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't quite get there. We could record that sometime. I could have a beer and you could have a beer and then we could see where the conversation takes us. <laughs> this was more of the cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs>
Well, thank you so much, sir. You'll come back, right? I'd I'd love to talk again. Okay. Okay. Well, be well. Okay. Bye, Bye, everybody. Okay. A just heartfelt thank you to Dr. Joe Raylan for spending some time with me to discuss leadership, finding leadership. That was such a cool way to phrase this concept of leadership as practice. I think I just have great respect for anyone who has spent their career investigating and exploring and searching, and that is certainly what Joe has done in a number of different topics and in a number of different areas. So just thankful, thankful for the opportunity to have that conversation. For all of you, thank you so much for checking in. Can't thank you enough for continuing to go along this journey with me as we explore the many nooks and crannies of the topic of leadership and work to better understand this phenomenon. We have some exciting episodes coming up and some really cool things kind of in the hopper getting scheduled now. So be on the lookout. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Be well. Thank you to Dr. Raylan. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.